As I stared at the package, I knew exactly what I was going to do. And so I looked up the aisle of the store one way. There was no one there. I looked up the aisle, the other aisle of the store. There was no one there either. And so as quickly and as quietly as I could, I reached in and I took the Transformer action figure out of the package and I put it in my pocket and then I walked around the store, bought a piece of candy and walked out of the store and went back to my grandma's house. And at first, I felt really good about myself. I felt accomplished. I felt proud of myself. I felt strong and in control of things. But quickly after that, I started to feel really bad. I started to feel guilty and ashamed for taking something that didn't belong to me. And it was uh, one of many times in my life as a kid that I would steal. And I would steal because it would help me feel good in the moment. But then after the moment, I felt really bad about it. And what I didn't know until years later was that the root of the the guilt and the desire to, you know, take something and make myself feel better about it was a brokenness in my life, a brokenness that I was trying to fix through my own efforts of trying to make myself feel better about myself. And the deception was that I would help myself and in the end I'd feel better, but in the end I always felt worse and I felt guilty. And I look at all the other things that I did growing up, trying to fix my own brokenness, trying to, you know, change my behavior to fit in with certain crowds, or maybe buying that new thing would make me feel better, or using my relationships to feel good about myself, or breaking things when I was angry. Every time I did something that somehow I had convinced myself would fix my brokenness, only just revealed my brokenness, and then I felt really guilty for it afterwards. And I don't know how it plays out in your life. I don't know what behaviors and actions and temptations you've wrestled with growing up, whether you look back to your childhood or even, you know, hours ago, but here's the reality. We all have this brokenness, and then it's our desire to try to fix our brokenness through our own efforts. Uh, We use these circles often here at CVC to kind of illustrate that, and we have this brokenness circle. We're in this place of brokenness, and we have all these different efforts that we're trying to use to fix our brokenness. One of those efforts, even being religious, you know, obeying certain religious laws and making sure that you go to church and do all these things. Like, I can fix my brokenness by being a good spiritual person. And then the reality is, when we're all done exhausting all these ways we try to fix our brokenness, we're not fixing our brokenness. We're still broken. And now we feel bad for the bad things we did, the bad things we said, and all the other efforts we made trying to fix our own brokenness. Now, how do we get to this place of brokenness? Well, it's important just to be reminded what journey we've taken to get there. Now, when we look at how God designed everything in the beginning, we know that God made the world, we know that God made mankind perfect. There was no sin, there was no brokenness, there was perfection. And we still see God's design as we look around this world. When we look through the telescope, when we look through the microscope with our naked eyes, we see this beauty and complexity in the world in God's uh, design and creation. We also see uh, the good in the world and how people can, are capable of doing good things and do good things. So there's God's design is still evident, but we've departed from God's design. And it started with the original man and woman who in their initial act of rebellion said, God, we, we don't want your interference in our life. And now mankind constantly departs from God's design saying, we don't want you involved in our life, God. We're going to try to fix our own brokenness. And of course, that departure from God's design is what we know as sin. Sin is our efforts to try to fix our own brokenness and keep God out of the equation. And in the end, we always feel broken still and also bad for what we've been doing to try to fix our own brokenness. And so we're guilty before God. 
And we feel the shame that comes with living in rebellion against him. And no matter what we try, we can't make that go away. So we need something or someone greater than ourselves, greater than our own efforts to fix our brokenness, our own ability to try to fix the brokenness. We need a remedy to our sin. We need to be rescued. With all the bad in us and all the bad around us, we need something good or someone good. Jesus Christ is the good news. Jesus Christ is God's remedy to our sin problem. It's Jesus Christ who's our rescuer and who's the central figure of the gospel and the good news that God has given us to fix our brokenness and also pull us out of always having to feel shame and guilt from our failures in the past. Now, even though many of you know this, a lot of you sitting here are Christians, you know this, you're watching online, you know this stuff in your head. But the reality is a lot of you are still living with guilt and shame from past failures. You've done something, you know, that might have been years ago, decades ago, and somehow in your flesh, somehow, you know, the devil, whatever it is, makes you feel like you still have to hold, you know, hold your head down. And in reality, God said, no, I, I've fixed it so that you can hold your head high as you trust in me. And so we understand all of these things, but a lot of you are still uh, shackled to some of your shame and guilt that you don't need to carry and that God has freed you from through Christ. Now, we're going to be continuing today in our teaching series through the Apostles' Creed, and much of the creed is about Jesus. It's about Christ. Uh, for those of you who are new to CVC, and, or maybe you don't have a religious background, or you have a different religious background, you're like, well, what's with the creed? Basically, the creed uh, originated back somewhere in the late first century, early second century, as a declaration document written by early Christian leaders to help summarize core Christian uh, teaching and um, doctrine, as well as weed out false teachings about God. And we're using the creed as a map, if you will, to teach what the Bible has to say on those foundational teachings of Christianity. So we've been going through the creed a little bit at a time, unpacking what those statements mean by looking at the Bible and saying what the authority, God's word, has to say on these statements. So I invite you to look at the creed with me again. It's going to be uh, on the screen. It's also on the back of your program if you want to look there. And I'm going to invite you to read it with me again. For some of you, this is very new. For some of you, you've done this like thousands of times. But we're going to look through the creed as a declaration of our faith. So read it with me. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, who is, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. He descended into hell. Let's pause. Some of you are going like, I can't wait till we get to that week. That's next week, all right? So we're going to unpack that statement next week. And of course, the question is, did he really descend into hell? We'll find out more about that next week. Game on. Here we go. The third day, he rose again from the dead. He ascended to heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father Almighty, from whence he shall come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the holy Christian church, the communion of the saints. We'll stop there. Some of you are going, that's not the way I remember learning it as a kid. We're going to unpack that in a few weeks about 
Christian church, Catholic church, is it, you know, Catholic means global, doesn't mean Roman Catholic, uh, holy church, what's communion, all of these things, we'll be talking about that. Okay, continue on. The forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting, amen. I don't know if you've caught this, but uh, over 60% of what you just read and cited was about Jesus. Of, of the four boards behind me that so beautifully captured the Apostles' Creed, two and a half boards are about Jesus. It's about who he is and what he's done. The creed is very Christ-centric. And so what we believe about Jesus is critical to our relationship with God, to our understanding how God has remedied our brokenness and rescued us from sin. And the line that we're focusing on today is that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. Because the understanding of the death of Christ is one of the most critical teachings of Christianity. It informs our theology of forgiveness. We are spending time looking back today at this defining moment in humanity that still has profound, eternal weight for our lives today. So uh, when we think about the death of Christ, there are a lot of passages in the Bible that obviously capture, speak about the death of Jesus. I want to zoom in on just one little four-verse passage found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. You can turn there in your Bibles or fire up your Bible apps to 1 Corinthians 15. And what we're looking at is a moment where God had taken a man and radically transformed him. His name was Saul. Saul was a zealous persecutor of the Christian faith and the early church. He had blood on his hands from persecuting the church. And he had a real encounter with the resurrected Jesus and was transformed. And what we see here is now uh, God is using him to write to a group of Christians living in ancient Greece in a city of Corinth. And the Christians were struggling with disunity and immorality and idolatry and theological confusions. And one of the reasons that Paul was writing to them was to help them stay faithful to the gospel and the good news of Christ and remembering the significance and the value of the death of Christ and what we have because of the death of Christ. So 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. Let's find ourselves there. Here's what we see. Paul saying, now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Let's pray. Lord, as we open up your word today, God, we present ourselves as eager students to learn, but God, not just information. We pray for transformation in our lives. Make us more like Christ. Lord, today, no matter what our uh, individual backgrounds are as far as church, as far as spiritual things, I pray that you could rally our hearts in unity around the significance of the death of Christ and what we have because of your great act of love for us. So Lord, may your spirit lead us and guide us, instruct us, and change us today. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to focus on three realities from the passage we just read. The first reality is this. Jesus died and was buried. This is what Jesus did. Jesus uh, died and was buried. When we look again at verses 3 and 4, Paul's saying, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died. 
said that Christ died. Verse 4, that he was buried. Paul's saying, I've delivered to you, I've handed off to you, I've transmitted to you this very important information. He says, what's first importance? That's not chronological. That's saying the significance and the value. I've given you something of fundamental and foundational strength. It's of first importance. And it's something that Paul had received. And of course, when he speaks about received, he's not saying that men taught him this information. This is again a reference to his encounter with the resurrected Christ in which the lips of Jesus himself imparted the gospel of understanding to the apostle Paul. And again, the reason we look at Paul as being one of the most significant uh, reasons to validate the Christian faith early on in Christianity is because Paul's conversion was a historical event. It was a powerful event. For example, for us to really grasp that from a modern mindset, it would be similar to a high-level commander in ISIS converting to the Christian faith and then becoming a preacher and a missionary for the Christian faith. That's kind of the equivalent of what we think about when we think of Paul. So it's a very significant fact that he received this and was imparting this information because he once was an enemy of Christ and now he's a preacher of Christ. And here he is conveying to a group of Christians in Greece the importance of believing and remembering Christ's death. And of course, we see this articulated in the creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. We know that Christ's death includes his suffering and his burial. And the death of Jesus on a Roman cross is an undisputed historical event. Anyone who says otherwise just hasn't done their research. Now, we know that our primary source for understanding the events of the death of Christ come from the Gospels in the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And the way I like to think of the Gospels is kind of like four different camera angles on the same event right? So when you watch one of your favorite sports, you're watching football, basketball, whatever, you'll see different camera angles of the same thing that just took place. So that's why when you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, you'll be like, wait, I saw this already, but it's a little bit different. Yeah, that's the different camera angle of that same event of Christ's life. So let's just take a second and revisit, not exhaustively, but we're going to enter into the moment of Christ's death for a few minutes. And we're going to look through two different camera angles. One's through the eyes of the Apostle John and one's through the eyes of the Apostle Matthew. Both of these men were eyewitnesses. They saw all these things take place and then recorded them. And so obviously there's a lot that they recorded, but we're just going to narrow it to what they're saying about the death of Christ. And so I'm going to put the addresses on the screen and you can either look them up really fast if you, if you feel quick on the draw or you can just you know, look at them later. But we're going to be looking in John 19 through the eyes of the Apostle John. And uh, he's looking at what took place through uh, the, the abuse of Jesus under Pontius Pilate. Now, Pontius Pilate was the Roman governor during the time of Christ, reigning over Judea from 26 to 36 AD, in case you're not familiar with Pilate. So look at John 19, 1 through 3. Here's what we see. It says, Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and struck him with their hands. This is some of the events of suffering under Pilate. Then we fast forward to John 19, verses 16 through 18. And it says, He, Pilate, delivered him, Jesus, over to them, the soldiers, to be crucified. 
So they took Jesus and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on either side and Jesus between them. So this is the account of Jesus dying from the eyes of John. Then we see it from the perspective of Matthew. Matthew chapter 27, verses 26 to 31, we see this recorded. And having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered together the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns. They put it on his head and put a reed in his right hand, and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they spit on him. And I took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to crucify him. Jesus was abused beyond our comprehension under the rule and reign of Pilate. Now, I'm not going to go into all the suffering, but when you start to think about all that Jesus went through from his own prayer time in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he felt the weight and anxiety of what was about to happen, to his illegal arrest, to all the uh, beatings and all the things that he occurred when you look deeper in the Gospels, um, to, to being put before Pilate, the illegal trials that he endured in the middle of the night, and then, of course, Pilate ultimately being put in a position to go, ah, I don't want to, really want to do this, but I'm going to, and dismissing Jesus to be flogged or scourged, which if you're familiar with that, you know what that is. If you're not, it's 39 lashes from a Roman soldier with a cat of nine tails, a multi-strapped whipping instrument with bone and rock and other things embedded in the straps. And we know this was a significant part of his suffering. In fact, Eusebius, who's a third century Roman historian who observed many of these floggings, said this. He said, the sufferer's veins were laid bare and the very muscles, sinews, and the bowels of the victim were open to exposure. This is what happened to the body of our Savior. And then, of course, they paraded him through the city of Jerusalem. As they did so, this was right after his brutal torture session. He could barely even carry his own cross. One doctor who studied the death of Christ and who's a diagnostic and research specialist said that Jesus was most definitely going to be in hypovolemic shock. It's a condition that happens from losing too much blood and it causes fatigue and collapse. We see in, in Matthew chapter 27 how a man named Simon was recruited to carry the cross of Christ because he could no longer carry it. In this hypovolemic shock, the kidneys stop producing urine to maintain what little hydration is left. And the person becomes extremely thirsty and a desire to replenish all the lost fluids of their body. And so Jesus had lost all that blood. He was highly dehydrated. That's why we see him saying, I'm thirsty you know, as he's quenching for fluid. And of course, eventually he was laid upon the rough cross to be nailed to it. And I don't know what happens in your mind. You can even close your eyes and go there. But think about the nailing of Jesus to the cross. They're already in this flailed condition. He's on this rough cross. And then to have soldiers take metal nails and then nail them through his wrist. And some of you are thinking, but the Bible says hand. You just need to know the language of the day included the wrist and the word hand. The palm itself would not support the weight of a body, but the wrist would. And so they would hammer the nails 
through the wrist, which would then crush and pierce the median nerve. Have you ever hit a nerve in your body? Imagine a metal nail being driven through your wrist, crushing the median nerve and sending that fiery pain throughout your whole body, followed by the searing pain of the nail that then would go through his feet and the nerves and all the tenderness of his feet. And then they would stretch him across that cross beam on the cross during the crucifixion. Psalm 22 has a prophetic passage that says that the Messiah would have his bones out of joint. We believe at least one or both of his shoulders became dislocated as they stretched him across the cross beam. Maybe even his elbows and wrists too as they gave no care to the body but just tried to accomplish the task of nailing it to the cross. And then the torturous agony trying to get one excruciating breath after another for six hours until Jesus eventually succumbed to suffocation and heart failure. I read in one place that the crucifixion can be considered a medical catastrophe to the body. And this is only a brief verbal reminder of what Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate when he died. And the interesting thing is some people say, well, this actually never happened. This is all mythological. Jesus is mythological. The cross, the, the crucifixion was mythological. Because all you use as Christians is the Bible. You're using the Bible to reinforce your own beliefs. Well, we know that the Bible is, you know, uh, eyewitness accounts. It's stood the test of time. That's a whole other argument. But for those who want sources outside the Bible, there's some there too as well. Uh, included in those would be, for example, the Roman historian Tacitus. Tacitus, writing about uh, Nero and the burning of Rome, wrote this in the Roman historical uh, document, wrote, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians by the populace. Christus, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty during the reign of Tiberius at the hands of one of her procurators, Pontius Pilate. Roman historian, he's got no dog in the fight. He's just recording history, saying a guy named Christ suffered crucifixion under Pontius Pilate. Also, you have first century Jewish historian Josephus. He's a Jewish man. He's not sympathetic to Christianity or the Christian cause. He says when Pilate, upon hearing him, reference to Jesus, accused by men of the highest standing among us, had him condemned to be crucified. And so we do have unbelieving people writing historical accounts about the death of Christ. We know what happened. Even atheist researcher and scholar Gerd Ludemann wrote that Jesus' death as a consequence of crucifixion is indisputable. It doesn't stop the skeptics from still making that argument. They just haven't done the research. They're just producing false information. In fact, uh, there was one effort for a while to say, well, even, even Pilate must have been a myth. Maybe we can't get at Christ, but maybe we can eliminate some of the other people around the narrative. And so for a while, skeptics were saying, well, even Pontius Pilate wasn't real, which again, there's historical documentation in Roman and Jewish record of Pontius Pilate. But just to kind of quiet those skeptics, God allowed this to be found. In 1961, archaeologists discovered a plaque fragment at the dig in the ancient coastal city of Caesarea Maritima. The plaque was written in Latin and embedded in a section of the steps leading to the massive Caesarean amphitheater. It said, Pontius Pilate, prefect of Judea, has dedicated to the people of Caesarea a temple in honor of Tiberius. And so it's etched in stone by unbelievers about the reality of these people. So for those of you who know Christ, love Christ, you can know with certainty 
Jesus died. It's what he did. If you don't know Christ and you're still exploring the faith, you can know a certainty that Jesus Christ died as we've been told and instructed. Now, that Jesus died is very significant and important to us. But even more importantly is remembering why he died. The second reality we see here in that passage is this, that Jesus died for our sins. Okay, he died. Jewish man over 2,000 years ago died on the cross, but why? For our sins. 1 Corinthians 15.3 reminds us that Christ died for our sins. You will never understand the cross of Christ until you understand the sin of men. We're never going to get the cross until we get what sin is. And when a person says, I don't understand why Christ would sacrifice his own son, what they're really saying without knowing it is I don't understand how sinful man is. That's really at the root of that question. Now we have to look at sin. Sin is the Greek word harmatia. It's the idea of missing a mark, like shooting a bow and arrow and not even coming close to the bullseye. So sin is missing the mark. It's also known as falling short. See, when we understand the nature of God, we see this holy, perfect God who calls us to a life of obedience to him. Well, we all fall short of obeying God. We all miss the mark with God's perfection and holiness and who he is and what he's called us to do. So we all have sin. Therefore, we stand guilty before a perfect and holy God and deserving of his punishment for our sin and our disobedience and our rebellion. And as we start to understand God, you start to understand the dual nature of God, that he's very loving. God loves you, but he's also just, which means he will punish sin. He's not just going to turn a blind eye to all the sins throughout all of history. So he's, he's loving and just. He's merciful. He gives us mercy and he gives us grace, but he's also holy, which means that he hates sin. It's an offense to his spirit. And so God must and will punish sin. I like how John Stott, a theologian, puts this. He says, closely related to God's holiness is his wrath, which is in fact his holy reaction to evil. It helps me to know that God's wrath is his holy reaction to my sin and evil. God's wrath is his holy reaction to the sin and evil in the world. God does have wrath, and he has spared us from experiencing the full vent of his wrath at this point. And so when we think about that, it makes us have to come to terms with sin. The problem here is Uh, some of us are in a very sober, accurate place, healthy place of understanding sin. But sometimes we find ourselves in one of two extremes. Some of us are making too big of a deal of sin, and some of us are not making enough of a deal of sin. Let me explain what I'm saying. If, If you are making too big of a deal for sin, you don't understand the grace of God. And if sin's not a big deal to you, you don't understand the wrath of God. And so here's how it plays out. If sin is too big a deal, it means you're making sin bigger than God. And this is how it plays out in our minds. Man, you know what? Uh, I'm a sinful person. I'm a bad person. You've got the, all the you know, footage of all the things you've done and said running through your minds, let alone the stuff we forgot. We have the sense that we have offended God. And so now he can't love us. He can't forgive us. 
And so I'm going to spend my life going to church, doing religious deeds, trying to you know, uh, fulfill certain religious requirements, praying, reading my Bible, all these things to somehow work off my sin, somehow make God love me more. Or sometimes it's the upside down effect. I can't read the Bible. I can't pray. I can't go to church. I can't engage God because I'm so dirty he doesn't want me. See, when we find ourselves in that place, we're making too big a deal of sin. We're making sin bigger than God. We don't understand God's love. And so if that's you, you need to hear very loudly and clearly, God loves you. He extends to you his mercy and his grace. You're not beyond his reach. But then sometimes we see the opposite effect. We make too little of a deal of sin. If sin is not a big deal to you, then you aren't phased by your sin. You experience no guilt, no conviction for your sinful and immoral thoughts and actions. You lie a lot, but it's not a big deal. As long as you're not caught, it's fine. You're looking at pornography, but you don't feel bad about it. You're flirting with someone else other than your spouse, live or online, and and, uh, maybe you're even committing adultery, but it doesn't grieve you at all. In fact, you've come up with some sort of argument to justify it. See, this is you if you're sending it up and there's no sense of wrongdoing, there's no care that you're offending God, there's no conviction or intent to change. This is a very dangerous, dangerous place to be in the reality of God's nature and the fact that God does have wrath as a holy reaction to sin. It means you don't get God, and it might mean you don't have God. There's just unrepentant sin running rampant in your life. But when we finally come to the place of understanding the sinfulness of man and the wrath of God, then we can see clearly the significance of Jesus dying for our sin on the cross. See, this is tied to the theology of atonement, that Jesus was atoning for our sins, that Jesus substituted himself in our place so that the wrath of God would come upon him instead of us to make us right with God. He willingly did that on the cross for us. He absorbed the wrath of God. He took sin on himself. He became our sin bearer to heal our fractured relationship with God. So Jesus was atoning for our sins because of God's love for us. That's what we should be thinking about when we see the cross. See, the problem with us as Christians is this. After a while, the cross gets old. It's just this little thing we hang around our neck. Or it's a little thing on the wall that you don't really pay attention to. Instead of forgetting the significance of the cross, that God took this ugly instrument of torture and converted it into a beautiful image of love. I love how Matt Chandler, a pastor, we're using his, uh, his workbook in the series, says it. He says, the cross is a visceral and visual picture of God's love for you in Christ. So when we see the Christ, it should invoke gratitude and a deep understanding of what took place on that wood over 2,000 years ago. Now, I want to go back to revisit the crucifixion of Christ. Because here's what we typically do. We typically emphasize the physical agonies of the cross. And so we should because they're real. It helps us be grateful for what Christ did when we think about what he allowed his body to endure. The problem is sometimes we miss the emotional relational, spiritual agony of the cross. 
I want you to think about Jesus for a minute. Think about his arrest. Think about his interrogations. Think about the whippings, the beatings, the mockings, the spitting, the hitting, all the things, the crown of thorns on his head. Think of all the moments that you read in Scripture that were leading up to his death. Even though we know there was great pain and some level of reaction to those moments, we still see a strength and composure in Christ. They come to arrest him. Peter's busting out the sword. He's lopping off a dude's ear. He's like, let's go. And Jesus is like, Peter, put away your sword. Heals the ear of Malchus, the guy that got his ear chopped off, and yields himself to the arrest. He yields himself over and over. We see the strength and composure through the whole uh, you know, arrest and the suffering and the beatings of Christ, even when they're nailing his wrist to the crossbeam. What does he say about the Roman soldier nailing him? Does he cuss him out? Does he, does he spew profanities at him? Whatever. What does he say? He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Even in that moment, we see composure. And as you look at this crucifixion moment, we see composure and strength through the whole thing, except for one moment. We see Jesus break his composure in one moment that we haven't seen anywhere else at this point through the crucifixion experience. And it's recorded in Matthew 27, 46, when Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like we glance over that, not fully understanding what's happening in that moment. If you understand the atonement, if you understand what's taking place here, you get it. Because in that moment, you look back on Jesus' life, and every time he's talking about the Father, there's this endearing fusion of the Trinitarian Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. And you see how the Father and the Son are just linked together. My Father, my Father and I. And, And you see this beautiful union between the Father and the Son. But in that moment, it says that Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Cry out literally means screamed, like shrieked. This wasn't a whisper. This wasn't him just making a statement. This was the loudest moment on the cross, which is just a miracle in itself, given the condition of his body and his lungs and the, you know, no water, no fluid, screaming out, my God, my God, why for a second? Why? Because in that moment, all sin from Adam and Eve taking from the fruit from Cain killing his brother. You go on through all the scriptures, every sin we see in the pages, all the way to sin's future that still haven't been committed yet because Jesus hasn't returned yet. Jesus took all sins for all time. He's the sin bearer. They were all put on Jesus on the cross. My stealing, your issues, your lust, our murders, our adultery, our idolatry, our slanderous, our pride, all of that stuff was put on Christ on the cross. And in that moment, the Father turns his back, and for the first time we ever see it, there is a disruption between the Father and the Son that Jesus had never felt before. What was that? It was the weight of all of our sin being dumped on him, and then the Father poured out his wrath on his son as our substitute. That's what was taking place in that moment. And we gloss over that. We don't forget there was an emotional, relational, this visceral, spiritual break as Jesus became our sin bearer in that moment. Why did he die? For that moment to take our sin upon himself. Why is it that we can so casually say, yeah, Jesus died for my sins. Forgetting the depth of what that very moment 
means. 1 Peter 2.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been what? Healed. You don't have to carry around guilt and shame from your failures of the past. Don't you let your flesh, don't you let people in your life, don't you let the devil convince you that you've got to have guilt and shame from previous mistakes shackled around you like a ball and chains to your life. Jesus severed it on the cross. You're free. That's the understanding of what's taking place in this moment. If you want to be free from guilt and shame, you have to believe in the one who took your guilt and shame and put it on the cross. So when we go back to these three circles, we see this narrative start to play out that we depart from God's design through sin into brokenness. We try to fix it. It doesn't work. And then God's provided this gospel. This gospel is what we just talked about, who Jesus is, what he did for us. And then at that point, you need to repent, turn from your sin, turn from yourself, and believe in who Jesus is and what he did for you. I mean, you could try to keep trying to fix your own brokenness if you want to, but that sounds pretty futile and foolish to me. It was paid for. That's the second reality. Jesus died for our sins. And when you understand that, then we get to experience the third reality, which is this. We can stand forgiven and free. See, this is how this information changes us. Let's go back to something Paul said at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15. He says, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you, what's the word? Stand. Paul was bringing back to the mind of the Corinthians the gospel, the content of the gospel, the truth of the gospel, the power of the gospel, the person of the gospel that he preached. He was making it known. He was transmitting it, and they received it. The same is true for us. At some point, we hear the gospel. Some of you might be hearing the gospel for the first time. You're live, listening, that's you. You're here in this room, that's you. Some of you know the gospel. You can remember when you first heard it. And then we're called to receive it and believe. That's what happened here. He says that they had received the gospel. Think about it this way. When a UPS or FedEx delivery person shows up to your door with a box, they give you the box and then make you do what afterwards? Sign for it. Why do you have to sign? Just because they want to see what your signature looks like? Nice signature. That's, well, that's, that's gorgeous. Yeah, what is that? That's what they say after mine. Is that why? No. The signature's there so that the person who sent the package knows you received it. See, when the gospel is given, God knows that we've received it when we sign through belief. What happened here is the Corinthians didn't just hear it with their ears. They heard it with their heart, and they believed it. And so you can know about Jesus, you can hear about Jesus, you can recite the information, but if you don't actually believe it in your heart, you haven't signed yet. If you haven't signed on the gospel, you haven't received it. And if you haven't received it, that's a spiritual eternity apart from Christ. If you have, it's a spiritual eternity in the presence of Christ. And so we have to receive that. Well, what does this death of a Jewish man over 2,000 years ago have to do with our life now? Yes, forgiveness of sins. Yes, salvation of our souls. Yes, new life in Christ. We get a new perspective on life and death. Uh, we get a new attitude about how to live this life as we daily take a step toward eternity. And as we believe the gospel, as we believe this, then we start to be restored back into relationship with God and then start to live pursuing his design. And part of pursuing this design is this ability to stand. 
That's Paul saying here. He's saying the Corinthian believers had received it, and because of that, they were standing and they were being saved. Now think of the temptations and the doubts that bombard us daily, like waves and waves. Think of the unsettling events that happen on earth each day and in our homes. Think of the guilt and shame that would want to cling to us from past sins. It'd be very easy for us to be anxious all the time, to worry constantly, to become slave to our sins, to our doubts, to our shame. But one of the outcomes of believing in the death of Christ is that we can, as Paul says here, stand, which means make strong or establish or set. We have this stance of security now because of what Jesus did and our belief in it. 1 Corinthians 15, a little later, in verses 57 through 58, says this, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory, everyone say victory, right? It's been won, through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. See, Christ died for our sins so we can stand firm in the forgiveness that we have in Christ. Romans 8.1 puts it this way, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Now, we're not talking about developing a flippant attitude about sin. Oh, I can sin it up because Jesus forgives me. Now, that reveals a condition of your heart that's very alarming. I should ask you uh, to dig deeper and ask different questions. We're talking about knowing we're in Christ and able to walk in the freedom, not feeling condemned, not having that voice of guilt and shame yapping in our ears about stuff we've done in the past. Christ has freed us from that. So as Christians who've trusted in Christ, those sins are in the rearview mirror. We don't need to be held captive by guilt for past sins. We can stand firm in Christ. Now, some of you may already have this on lock. You got it. Some of you might be regularly struggling with this. I just want to give you a phrase. If this phrase can help you and serve you, I encourage you to write it down, put it somewhere special, add it to your prayer life, repeat it to yourself. But here's a phrase. Because I believe Jesus died for my sins, I stand forgiven before God. Because I believe that Jesus died for my sins, I stand forgiven before God. Repeat that with me. Because I believe that Jesus died for my sins, I stand forgiven before God. This can be a declaration of gratitude and celebration and worship, or it can be weaponized as a reminder when you're trying to pull, be pulled back into past guilt from old mistakes. Let this be used as a tool to help remind you of what we have in Christ. It's life-changing when we understand why Jesus died. And it helps us live differently. You know, we put together just a small video to help us see those realities by asking some of our own church family to share what the death of Christ has meant to them. Let's just watch this as a good reminder. Uh, Jesus' death on the cross is really important for me because uh, I recognize the sin in my life and I recognize that there's no way uh, I can make it to heaven. And without Jesus. To me, Jesus dying on the cross means that we are saved from our sins and we get to live in heaven forever and ever with Him. I have really been reflecting on 2 Corinthians 5.21 for Him who knew no sin to become sin for me so that I could become the righteousness of God. And so for me, that just encapsulates this week, this past week, 
a, a whole focus around hope and that that hope doesn't disappoint because of Christ bearing my sin. The cross has made me see how much Jesus loved me. How could he take a wreck like me and have me walk with him? Uh, Christ's crucifixion means to me that I don't have to bear my burdens anymore and that he's already done it for me. Uh, this, this guy that walked the earth 2,000 years ago uh, died for me and today, and that's really humbling, and uh, I owe him my life for that. But I know that I don't have to be perfect because he's already perfect. God's sin being born on the cross for me allows me to have hope in the small moments of my day where um, if it's with my spouse in a conflict um, or a place of disagreement, that um, when I am wrong, that I am still righteous before him. And the cross has helped me to grow and lead people to Jesus. I can cast all my anxiety and like all my burdens, all my weight, it's like anything like really. And like, just like I learned I can talk to him as a friend. Just the cross is a win-win eternal issue. It's finished, like it's done. There's nothing more you have to worry about. And by knowing Christ, he keeps you in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. And there's a freedom in Jesus because you, you, your guilt and your, your shame is gone and you're just a complete fellowship with God. Like he's, he's right there. Well, the Holy Spirit lives within us. And so that gives me hope. That allows me to know that it all doesn't rest on me. It's on the cross and he paid it all. And so for that, I'm super thankful. I'm super grateful. And the cross becomes even weightier and more meaningful to me. Are you guys thankful for what Jesus has done for us on the cross? Absolutely. I love some of the words that were captured in that video. Saved from sins, bore my sin, bore my burden, gives hope, made righteous in Christ, freedom in Jesus, guilt and shame gone, he paid it all. Because I believe that Jesus died for my sins, I stand forgiven and free before God. That's what God's called us to. I want to wrap up our time in a very uh, significant and appropriate way by taking the Lord's Supper. And so if you're a guest today or if this is something that's not familiar to you, let me just explain what this is. On the night that Jesus was arrested, he sat down with his disciples and had the Last Supper with them. And in that moment, he took some bread and tore it and handed it out. He took some wine, poured it into a cup, passed it around, and said, this bread's my body given to you. This cup is my blood poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And he instituted what we know as the Lord's Supper, communion. And it's something that Christians do together as an act of gratitude and declaration toward Christ. Uh, we're told in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. And so if you're not a Christian today, uh, this would not be a genuine act of worship for you. So feel free to let it pass. But I do want to invite you, if you're not a Christian today, but you know, like everything's come online today, like you know, like you need Christ. Uh, if you're online, just send us an email at connect at cvconline.org and we'll get in touch with you and tell you how you can connect with Jesus as your Savior. But if you're here, I want to invite you to do something uh, unique and significant. 
that if you know you need Christ and you're ready to turn your life over to him, you're ready to repent, turn from yourself and your sin to Christ, uh, we're going to have the Lord's Supper also over at this little table. There's going to be a light and a table on over in this corner with just a couple friends. And at some point in the next, you know, 10 minutes or so, uh, while we're handing out the elements, while we're standing and singing or whatever, uh, I invite you to stand up and just go over to that table and just say, I'm, I'm here, I need Christ. And our two friends there will just walk you through how to give your life to Christ. And you can take the Lord's Supper for the very first time as a follower of Christ, as a profession of your faith. So what a beautiful and courageous thing to do. You're invited to do that. For the rest of us as followers of Christ, uh, we're going to hand out the elements. In fact, you guys can start handing those out even now as I'm talking. And as these elements come, this little piece of bread and this little plastic cup of juice are reminders of Christ's death. They're symbols of Christ's body and his blood that were given to us for the forgiveness of sins. And so as you receive these, I invite you just to hold them. I will come back up in a minute and lead us in taking them together. But just hold them. And as you're holding them, uh, we're going to be singing a song. You can sing the song, declare it. You can stand, you can sit, whatever's comfortable. You can pray, just talk to the Lord. You can ask, you know, confess sin. Maybe, maybe this statement would be a great starting point for you. You can say, Jesus, because you died for my sins, and then fill in the blank. <laughs> because you died for my sins, and then you can just start to pray and just thank God for all these things. So I'm just going to give you guys a moment right now that as you receive the bread and the cup, just take them, hold them, pray, worship. I'll come back up, lead us again. If you need Christ, don't let anyone stop you. Don't let fear or discomfort stop you from just getting up, go to the back, walk around the table, and our friends over there will help you understand what it means to surrender your life to Christ. But let's prepare to take the Lord's Supper by preparing our hearts right now.